Uh, what's going on, everybody? My name is Arjun Gupta. I play Penny on Sci-Fi's and the Magicians. And welcome to the Coffee Clatch Podcast. Get ready for a wild ride. The Coffee Clatch To the Coffee Clash Crew, The Magicians episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And we bring magic back into our lives with episode five, Escape from the Happy Place. Written by Mike Moore and directed by Mira Minan. Eminem, Eminem, Eminem. <laughs> and interestingly, I'm sure, purposefully, Mike Moore wrote A Life in the Day, which was episode five last season, the exact same time within the season. Oh, and our favorite episode ever. I think a lot of people's favorite episode ever. This was such a great way to go back and explore that because we sort of left it dangling. We knew they'd come back around eventually to show us what happened there. I listened to him in an interview on another podcast. How come other podcasts are getting all these people (laughs) and they won't talk to us? And I would love to have Mike Moore. He has so many great thoughts about the show. Apparently, they did not have this planned out when they wrote A Life in the Day, the second part of The emotional depth to what happened between Elliot and Quentin. I can't wait to talk about that. Actually, I kind of figured that much. One, because they didn't leave anything to think there was more at the end of that episode. And also, you could tell that that was filmed this year and not back then. Our characters actually look different, even though they tried to make them look like they did then. That's true, but you didn't think there was this unresolved something that we had to come back around to? Well, I think that about a lot of things. Emotionally in the show. for the two of them? Um, you know, I thought it would make sense if there was, but I feel like, especially with the way Elliot is and his feelings, and he's very open, I thought for sure they'd always be closer, but I didn't think it was unresolved. Well, we come to find out he is open, except when it comes to true emotional depth, things that scare him. This explains a lot about Elliot's personality, which they also got into more with the memories. That's another topic for later on. As incredible as all of this was, learning about his happy place, his repressed traumas, the converging finally which I was waiting for, so happy to see, of Alice's storyline with the rest of our groups. It was all really dark, the Margot stuff as well. The critic said this episode reinforces the magician's knows how to do tragedy. It revisited one of our favorite episodes, which was an instant classic and featured outstanding performances from Jason Ralph, Hale Appleman, and Summer Bischel. And you know I love the psychological aspects, so this was an episode for me. It's also being really well received. IMDb is giving it a nine right now, which is tied for first place with episode one. You're going to hear a lot of dinging. Our Twitter is on fire right now. Sorry about that. (laughs) That's amazing. Before we jump into all those fun topics, let's go over our new faces and places. We had the reintroduction of Iris, played by Madison Beattie, although unfortunately, or depending on how you view her character, it was kind of short-lived. And for new people, we got to meet Charlton, played by Spencer Daniels, the man formerly possessed by the monster who Elliot shot in the castle last season. Uh, Did you notice that Iris looked different? Like, we almost thought it was a different actress. Yeah, I don't know what that was. New haircut, maybe? She's pissed off now. She's not living in her (laughs) divinity. Is that what it is? She's like, we're in trouble. Or maybe she's just not looking all goddessy with that glow to her. She definitely doesn't strike me as what I picture for Iris, the rainbow goddess. Especially when the way she speaks to her, geez. (laughs) That was terrible. We also had the introduction of a lot of new magical things. The happy place, which we learn is a nook in your mind that holds your most pleasant memories. 
Okay, so we were thinking it was a pocket world, but I guess you could call this kind of a pocket world. It really is. It's just a matter of does it have physical existence, and if so, where? It is somehow within the monster inside of him. Yeah, it's in that part of your brain. Elliot is within that part of his brain, but also that form of consciousness is within the monster somewhere. Okay. It's just like inception level concepts. I don't know. <laughs> well, the monster doesn't have a body yet. Yet. So. Maybe. We also see the living stone, a magic stone that was used to build Castle Blackspire. You know, with that stone, I really like the fact that they use that as a way to remind us. Quentin is good with magic. I mean, he's done a lot this season with the magic. He's helped us tremendously. But uh, don't forget how good Alice was. Alice is on another level, and as much as he doesn't want to admit it, they really need her skills and her help right now. We had a couple of Florian customs or traditions, including the last lay, where a widow lays in her marital bed buried in the garments of her dead love. I love the play on words with that. We'll get into how much I love Fen in this, but the last lay, you could think about it as in relationships when someone breaks up, they have sex one more time. Mm-hmm. So it's that play on words. But in this case, it's the last time you, you lay down with all of their garments. I love it. It makes you think of when you break up with somebody, and you're sitting like holding an old mm-hmm. sweater of theirs. And you're smelling it. It's so Fen and... Perhaps she doesn't get proper treatment because we don't have time right now within the story. We're kind of coming to her for these brief comedic moments, but she handles them so fantastically. She also talks about them building an altar of remembrance that we don't get to see more about. I'm sure we'll come back to that. I really hope it's built when Elliot comes back and he has some quippy saying when he looks at it. I Just really so hope awkward. So. <laughs> And finally, the talking lizard of the dunes that Margot finds inside of her birthright box. We're going to come back around to that in our character review section. The character review this time isn't going to be so much solely focused on one person as a few groupings of topics that are presenting a lot of questions for us right now. And we also got a great comment from one of our clatchers in regards to the talking animals. Can't wait to talk about that. Great. There's a lot to talk about, so let's jump into our plot. We're not going to move totally sequentially. I want to handle our characters first where it's not quite central to what's happening with Quentin, Elliot, and the monster. Beginning in Fillory, where Margot wants Penny to help her get her birthright box before breaking the news to the kingdom about Elliot. When he says he's a little busy helping Julia, she begins to tease him, but he counters, didn't she bring Josh here? So recognizing the budding, maybe slightly weird relationships we were talking about, they didn't just ignore it. Margot and Josh, Julia and Penny. Yeah, it still felt weird to me. Maybe because I'm still hung up on our Penny. I don't know. I felt like Penny 23 was getting along a lot better with our characters this season. Than you wanted him to? (laughs) No, no. I wanted him to get along. Okay. But better than this encounter here. Okay. Yes, but he always has that residual suspicion, especially where Margot's concerned. We heard him say last episode when she was confronting the monster, Mm. she's going to get us all killed. That's right. And I like that they're throwing that in there because we had mentioned Penny 23 is similar in a lot of respects to our Penny 40. It can be too easy to forget sometimes. He's not the same person. I don't think they've had enough time to flesh that out yet. They're going to leave off with him on kind of a bizarre note later in the episode where he is randomly attacked, injected with something, and kidnapped. This Penny is lacking the Arjun sexuality Mm. that our Penny has. 
And that's what I think is missing. It's a very low hum with this penny, which makes sense. We don't want to fall in love with this guy. We've been saying we don't think he'll be here too long. And I think if and when we get our old penny back, we're going to remember, oh, yeah, there's that sexuality that is really, that's Penny. Maybe that's why Julia is not totally into it. But Maybe. I think this is the beginning of whatever is going to happen to pull him out of the storyline. I am not sure if you have any thoughts on who that was that's taking him or why. I do. Katie. And that's why we haven't seen her. Oh. Katie wants her Penny back. Hmm. See, I got the impression she maybe allowed herself to forget at times, but ultimately acknowledged that this wasn't the same guy. It wasn't the person she wants to be with. But is she going to use Penny 23 to try to get her Penny 40 back? That's what I mean. Oh, that's what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. The last time we saw her, and I was going to save this till later, but it's a good time now. Two episodes ago, the last scene of that episode was her sitting in the power seat in Marina's apartment with the puppies. And her whole attitude was different. Where are those, those puppies at right now? Well, where the, she's with, they're with Katie, apparently. <laughs> okay. She's going to use them for something. Maybe she transferred some of the bad luck into those puppies. I don't know. Mm. The fact of the matter is, we haven't seen her. It was bothering me, but I think there's a reason. There's always a reason. And I think because she now, the last time we saw her again, feels powerful, looked powerful. That means she has an idea. She has a plan. She is going to use this penny to get her penny back. How? I don't know. And I could be way off. Ooh, so we could take a trip into the underworld and try to make a jailbreak. That would be such a cool storyline. We're already at episode five, so I would like them to start moving that forward if we're going to see that plot line. It does feel like they're purposely breaking Katie off from the group again. So I would like it if it's for that reason and not to be involved in something else minor, like what's going on with the McAllisters. You know, when we saw well, that's them. minor now. Uh, yeah, but when we saw them grab Marina and the whole luck scandal, mm-hmm. I would suspect that's where it was going. And that's not really where I want to see her character arc this season. I would rather it be focused on Penny and getting our look at the underworld. You know, I'm starting to think that the library and the McAllisters are not in play right now because they're not a threat enough with the monster around. If they come into play at this point, the monster is going to be like, this is boring. You're messing with what I need my friends, quote unquote, for, and he would just destroy them and it would be easy peasy. They won't come back in full force until the monster is predisposed or has his body and goes back up to the god world or what what have you. Mm-hmm. So I think we're not going to see them for a couple of episodes at least. I'm cool with that. I'd rather we address the god situation and this ongoing mystery of what's happening with him that we will talk about. Well, so we haven't seen a lot of Katie... On the other end of this situation, we didn't see Josh at all this episode. Yeah, but I'm used to that with Josh. They do that often with him. Absolutely. And this was really focusing on Margot and what we knew was the central point. Her trying to deal with what she thinks is the permanent loss of Elliot. In fact, Fenn asks her if she's mourned it yet. And she has this great line. She says, I can't cry about the sadness ever because if I start, I'll never stop. I'll be useless forever and somebody has to rule this kingdom. Beautiful. I read this somewhere, and I completely agree. I wish it was my words. Margot has this amazing talent. Well, Summer has this amazing talent of displaying so much charisma, power, and confidence while having the ability to show so much emotion and vulnerability at the same time. It's pretty amazing. It makes me think about the famous Game of Thrones quote. Winter's coming. 
know <laughs> where he asks, can a man still be brave if he's afraid? I think that's Bran asking. And Ned tells him that's the only time mm-hmm. a man can be brave is when he's afraid and he does it anyway. And that's Margot in a nutshell. Absolutely. It turns out there's also other problems going on. Rafe asks Margot to visit Abigail because she hasn't been herself lately. She hasn't spoken all day, in fact. The Royal Sheep Choir has gone silent, too. When Margot has a guard finally open the birthright box and they find the contents, an infamous talking lizard of the dunes, they realize all of the talking animals have been struck dumb. So one, I'm really happy that they went right back to the box. They didn't wait too long for us to forget about it and lose interest. We had thought maybe that's Pandora's box, but we weren't too confident about that. So it's something completely different, and we're not going to get the answer anytime soon, apparently. But we had a Clatcher write-in, I think via Facebook this time, Ashley, and she said she thinks it might be more of a Narnia thing, where it's not anything wrong with the animals, but it's the humans who can't understand them any longer. That's a good theory, except it seems when we're looking at the lizard, he's purposefully if a lizard can be purposeful, not speaking. He looks like... Not that he's saying something and we don't get it. Right. But they've literally all gone silent for some reason. And I wonder if this will tie back into our theories about Margot, how she's been transformed with her fairy eye, her lycanthropy. Is there going to be some facet of who she is now that enables her to understand what's happening where nobody else can? And I think she has to go on this journey of her own before that's going to be resolved. I have theories about that, but it relates to spoilers and book content. So we're going to save it for character review. I'm confused with that because it's not just she can't understand them or hear them. It's all of Fillory. All the talking animals are no longer speaking. I think they're not speaking for a reason. And she has to figure out she is uniquely qualified let's say. Oh, that's what you're saying. To She's figure gonna out figure it what out. that is. Got it. Okay. I dig it. It harkens back to what you said last episode, and I squashed it in my head. You said there's still problems in Fillory. I had assumed since Bacchus is gone, there no longer is a problem, but it looks like there is. Mm. So uh, I don't know. I love Ashley's theory here. And if her theory is right or yours, I think your theory would fix that as well. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not the animals that have the issue. When there was no magic, the animals still had power to talk. Yeah, because their magic doesn't derive from the wellspring. Right. They always seem to have some kind of superior knowledge, though. The way that Rafe regards Abigail, her slowness. They have something important to tell us. And if they see trouble in the future for Fillory, something happening. Are they not sharing that for a reason? Something that's bigger than all of us and does tie into the gods and is going to be a way to weave in everything that we're seeing this season. This is way out of left field, but is the library trying to take the magic animals because they can't control their magic? So they're trying to take them? So the animals are being struck dumb on purpose so that they don't know the difference? I don't know if they would have the power to do that. I mean, I think the library thinks uh, what they are. I'm not sure yet, even still, how much actual power do they have? I I mean, something substantial, but is it more than the gods, Hmm. let's say, you know? Good question. We could talk about this all day. Let's Uh, move on. Yes, I know. (laughs) And speaking of something we weren't sure quite how it fit in, I'm really glad to see we came back to the Netherlands. Having safely escaped the library, Alice and Plover are navigating the fountains, using the spell they placed on the world book. 
They're following the map with their destination fountain marked. We can see the little light on top of it. If you look at that map, each fountain is indicated with a grouping of numbers. And there's also a symbol somewhere within them. And the symbols are different for each one. Yeah. No, I don't know if that's just arbitrary, the way you would see on an atlas something marked off or if that's going to be important. But when Alice says she needs to go help Quentin, Plover thinks she should track her own location. She's confident, though, in the information she got from Q's book. I don't know why she's so resistant to that, if it's just because it's Plover's idea. He goes on to try to preach to her, realizing she's on a redemption arc. He says, only apologize for what you've done, never who you are, because you can't change that. Those words are echoed later on in this episode, when she's trying to make Quentin forgive her. So remind me of that sentence when we get to that scene. Mm. Well, and she doesn't like that very much, because it's as soon as he said that, that she covertly changes their location fountain to another one. And Plover questions the fountain when they arrive. He's wondering, is this the right one? And he says he's never seen one locked before. Even then, I didn't put it together where they were. Alice does a spell and easily opens it. We see the symbols on each piece of metal. She gives him a rope to enter the water so he can climb out if he changes his mind. Yeah, Christina did a lot of pausing. That's why our poll came out a half hour later. Taking pictures of these uh, markings and symbols and I was just saying to her, we're not going to figure it out. We don't have the time. Well, <laughs> no, but this is the kind of show where it pays to do all of this research because we have learned they don't drop anything. Everything's important and they'll come back around to it eventually. And in fact, they are coming back around here because we're going to learn later this was the poison room fountain that she sent him to. Man, is that dark. Now, do you think it was closed off because it's the poison room or closed off because the library has all the fountains closed? No, I think we saw it was the same thing when Penny went there. It's so dangerous, it's always locked. Mm. This is really kind of a sad moment when Plover says goodbye. He tells her, I do hope wherever you go is where you're supposed to be. And she says the same to you. It's then she unties the rope and walks away. So I wanted to ask you about this. What are your thoughts on Alice actually killing Christopher Plover? Yeah, there was a lot of commentary on that in articles and things being written about the episode. How do we judge this action? And when we see the interactions between her and Quentin later, do we agree? His level of harshness that he's not willing to forgive what she's done. And this is really kind of a nail in the coffin when he finds out what she did to Plover. It's not that he is a good person. He's a bad person. But if he's telling the truth, he's A, been punished for his crimes many times over for many, many years. By the monster, yeah. And yeah, and, oh, by oh, Martin Chatwin. Sorry, by the beast. The beast. Excuse me. Yeah, he, he had his justice, if you want to call it that. And all he wants now is to go someplace where he can't hurt anyone yeah. ever again, just live out the rest of his time. So I suppose the question is, who is Alice to become judge, jury, and executioner that this isn't enough and he deserves to die? And that's a reflection on the Alice that we've grown to see all these seasons. She always feels like she's the one that knows better than everybody. Mm -hmm. She's the one that can make that decision, even if everyone else is making the, oppo the opposing decision. She will, in the end, swoop in, destroy all the keys and the magic, and ruin everything. Julia lose her god powers, make everyone sacrifice even more because of her arrogance. Yeah, I guess my question would be, how much of this is under her control? Because we see she was perhaps irrevocably changed. When she was transformed into a Niffin, 
she became something else. And this seems to be a central theme, especially this season with the magicians, about the level of humanity that we have. And when that's taken away in certain regards, it's almost completely stripped from somebody like the monster. Are we going to find out later on in the season, we've talked about that, that perhaps that's not really his fault. He was robbed of these essential pieces that made him who he was. We've also mentioned that we've seen this with other characters when Julia lost her shade. She did some pretty fucking awful things. In another timeline, we got to see Quentin robbed of his shade, turning into the beast. This was not really who they were or who they were supposed to be. And the group kind of always understood that and was trying to help them to reclaim that part of what they had lost. When it comes to Alice, though, they're not doing that. They're not trying to help her. They were. On her redemption journey. <laughs> how many times? How many? Well, how many times did we do it with Julia until we figured it out? I mean, what is the difference, I guess, is what I'm asking between those characters. And she is here now <clears throat> going perhaps further than anybody's gone before to try to redeem herself, to undo the wrongs that she's done, to come back and help the group. I think the moment that proved this to me is where she says later to Quentin, I just want to help and I'm not expecting anything in return. In fact, once we're done figuring this out, I'll go wherever I'm supposed to go that this world book tells me and I'll stay there forever. And even that is not good enough, that she's basically banishing herself once she's finished repenting. Well, the thing with the way Q is reacting to this is that he's not wanting to make her pay for it. He's saying he has no space for her. The team has no space for her. They don't trust her. They can't have her around, which I agree with at this point. I agree with that on face value. And I'm just talking emotionally. I think that's what we know. We've seen other things. Yeah, I think that's the problem. I think that Q is reacting emotionally. I don't think all of that is just rational judgment. Alice, you've done wrong, and we don't know if we can trust you. You need to go elsewhere. He does bring it back to their relationship, and I wonder if this is, at the base of it, wounded Quentin speaking. I loved you, and you couldn't trust that. You, you, we couldn't make this relationship okay. work, and I, I worry when Quentin makes decisions from that standpoint, because now the entire question can be reversed. Who is Quentin to say that? What Alice deserves or not? When you explain it from that, I think you're totally right. But when you think about it from my point of view, if I was part of the crew and we got this monster here, we got the library, we got all these things happening. Do you want to be making up plans and wondering if this woman's going to last minute destroy all your plans? No, I don't. And I wish we had an outside voice speaking from a non-emotional place to that kind of stuff. Because it seems like she just proved her worth kind of in a trial by fire with the monster, she did exactly what she said. <clears throat> Quentin would have died and wouldn't have been able to figure out that situation yep. if she hadn't bled the stone faster. The two of them, yeah. him and Julia, might have gotten killed by the monster if she hadn't thought fast and said, oh no, this was all part of our plan, don't you see? They needed her in those moments and she fixed the situation. For sure. I never doubt that we need her in the group. She's one of the more powerful magicians there. The most. Because it, yeah, it's just, do you trust her? You could use her many times over. And I think really you, you could use her without trusting her. Okay. Is basically, I dig what if you're I was the group coming from that Think place. analytically, not emotionally. Yeah, and I don't think 
<clears throat> even Julia is not really able to do that right now. You know, she shows that when she gives her the finger walking away. And you know, I forgive too quickly, especially with TV shows where it doesn't actually. Well, that's what I mean. You're you're rah rah team Julia now. Julia Gulia. Because somebody said she's a goddess and turned her around. But think about where she was. True. Okay. Last season. Yeah, next week I'll be like, I love Alice. <laughs> I forgive her completely. I don't think this is easy. And I really applaud the magicians because they're exploring these gray areas. And it's not a black and white decision. I was just as pissed at Alice as anybody else when she effed up the plans last season. And I still think she's doing wrong by what happens with Plover here. I don't think we could just write her off either. I think it would be actually dangerous to do what Quentin is suggesting because she's not just going to go away right now. But we'll come back to that later in the two of their interactions. First, let's switch gears and talk about the topic we've been really excited to discuss. Inside the happy place, appearing as the physical kid's cottage, Elliot is lost in his most pleasant memories. We're back at the physical kids. I was just saying I wish we were there. just saying it. Are you happy? I am. He remembers teaching Todd, who it turns out was named Elliot as well, but forced to go by his middle name thereafter. I mean, is that just an example of Elliot's dickish behavior that he needs to regret now that we didn't even realize? It is. But also, it explains everything that we've been seeing with Todd. And it all it completely makes sense. Elliot manifested this Todd who wants to replace Elliot because as soon as Elliot Todd, let me just say Todd, got to the school, Elliot was teaching him how to be an Elliot. So, of course, as time goes on, he's watching Elliot, he's trying to learn, and he wants to be the next Elliot. It all makes sense now. It's a big circle. Yeah, but he just so flippantly says, nah, I'm the only Elliot here. You're going to well, go by Todd now. I don't give a shit how you feel about that. Just It's seniority, man. He's a freshman. That's it, what's up. It's so much more than that. <laughs> we'll get into all of Elliot's issues in a moment. So he's teaching him. Then we flash to another memory where he's organizing a party with Margot, and then later smoking with her on the couch, saying he loved the nothing most about summer, the beautiful nothing. But all of these memories are interrupted by a persistent knocking at the door, one that Elliot doesn't want to answer. Psychologically wise, um, the knocking starts when he's at the party, and then his memory goes right away to the summer when it's just him and Margot where there would be no one else on campus, so no one will be knocking. Did you notice that? That was pretty cool. Well, he's trying to ignore his subconscious. Yeah. Right? That's Which we all do. Bubbling up, let me in. And when Margot finally does answer, a man pulls her outside and says this was all to get Elliot's attention. Someone is coming inside. He's there to warn them. We hear a monster, and then they pan out of the Elliot monster's eye. All right, before we move on, and I won't fixate on this too long... But I think this is a fun little uh, thing to think about. The question of having the ability to live in your favorite memories. Now, let's take away the fact that a monster has overtaken your body. (laughs) I remember growing up as a kid, there was those certain days that were really fun and happy. And you're like, oh, I wish this would last forever. And then you say, well, I wish I could relive that. So I always thought if I had the ability just to go back and relive it and enjoy it again. So this really hit a chord, a child chord in me. If we had that, would you do that? Would you go and relive some favorite memories of yours? I mean, I'm sure if I had that power, I'd play around with it a little, but it's it shows so quickly here. None of that is truly real. When Charlton just tells Elliot in a little bit, just imagine Margot is not there. 
and poof, she disappears. Yeah. This is not reliving it. Right. It's your own version of that story that you've written down in your mind somewhere. Yeah, your memory is your biggest liar. That makes sense. And, I, you know, I like that certain characteristics are going to remain true to all of them. The essential Margot is still there, the essential Quentin, but he's also using them how he needs them, remembering them at these times where they'll serve him best. I think it's automatically showing you that can never be what you want it to be. And also it's dangerous to get lost in that too long. He says that to become content and get stuck. For sure. When we go into universe, I was talking about like real life, but that was going to be my next question. So if we can go to our favorite memories or just go back and relive things, maybe learn from them, you know, go back to the first time in moving day in college and just watch it all unfold or go to a party that was awesome. There'd be a contingence that you're pausing real life, right? But my next question, which you just talked about is, would that prevent you from making new memories because you'd be constantly living in old memories? Yeah, good and bad. There was a Black Mirror episode like this where you had all your memories recorded and you could watch and replay them and how bad of a situation that could turn out to be. Yeah, you could get stuck in the good ones and forget to live in the moment. But the bad ones, you could just perseverate on for the rest of time that there is a reason why our memory works the way it does and allows us to forget things or things to fade into the past because it serves us, it protects us. And we're going to see that aspect of it with Elliot here as well. We can't just forget about these things. We have to deal with them, but then maybe they belong in a place somewhere. Well, coming back out of this for a minute, we see the Elliot monster asking Q if he's done being sad now because he needs his help. If this is about Elliot, he's gone. He should stop thinking about that. But he says, I'm here. I'm your friend, so really it's the same thing. He pulls out the item, organ, I don't even know what you want to call it, I'm calling it the item, which is now completely hard and black. And I find that interesting. He bangs it against the table. Petrified poop, that's what I thought it was. (laughs) Petrified, yeah, it's like a stone. We had wondered if taking it out of a living host starts to rob it of something as it seemed to be losing color losing its glow from the moment he took it out of Bacchus, does it need to be housed within something to have that activated? Or is it hardening itself against revealing its secrets? But we're going to find out. Perhaps it's forced to reveal its secrets later on. Half-heartedly trying to help when the monster pushes him, Q says, it looks really old, like beginning of civilization old in Mesopotamia. And that immediately hooks the monster. Oh, a specific place where I could go? And he leaves instantly with a promise to see Q back at the apartment. I love the way Hale is acting the scenes out. (laughs) Brilliant. Meanwhile, back at the cottage, in the happy place, the man who had tried to abduct them introduces himself as Charlton. He explains, Elliot is being possessed by a monster inhabiting his body. What? He normally tears people to shreds, so believe me, this is preferable. And when he possessed you, he thrust all of you to this nook of your mind that holds all your remembrances. Everything here is a remembrance. Even your friend here. Having once also been possessed, Charlton was in his own memory for a long time. He says it's easy to get content and lose track of everything, both time and reality. And they have to stay here, inside of the cottage, because it's the only place the other creatures can't go. It turns out, outside are the monster's other hosts, inmates from the castle, horrid, wretched mistakes of the gods. So, 
whatever point this monster was thrust into the castle, it started doing this with all of the other monsters that were being stored in the castle, possessing them and taking their consciousness somehow, however he's doing this. And it's all in there now, in this little mind box. Yeah, and it looks like they will not die if their body dies. The only way they die is if they die there. Mm -hmm. And they're reigning there to the point that regular people like Elliot and Charlton can't leave or else they're going to get torn apart. He even tells us Aura, who we met last season that used to guard the castle, is dead. She had this same experience. And when Charlton tried to warn her, when you die here, you're gone forever. She didn't listen. She went looking for the door and she was torn apart. The only part of that Elliot hears is there is a door. There is an answer. He just needs a moment to find his friends and tell them he's alive. Charlton warns him, the door is hidden, deep in a forgotten remembrance, a place you don't look often because you don't want to think about it. Thus, Elliot needs to recall his most painful memory in order to be able to access it. He starts by bringing up what he thinks is his greatest trauma. The first time he ever used magic to kill a boy named Logan Kinnear with a school bus. He tells Charlton Logan was the worst person in his life then, a bully who made him consider killing himself on more than one occasion. But even after he talks about this, when no door opens, Charlton thinks there's something especially painful he's avoiding still. In the memory, he sees Taylor, his only childhood friend, who was kind to him. Changing thoughts to a school gym, we see a boy on the ground being kicked by all the other kids. A teacher finally stops them, but Elliot gives the boy one more kick. It turns out... He was Taylor. Elliot thinks hating yourself is one thing, but hating someone else, it turns out he was actually the worst person in his life. So he goes so far as to confront his own hatred, his own participation in an event like this. Still, no door. The room darkens, they hear noises, and we see those monsters approaching. It's only because the teacher intervenes and is attacked that Charlton and Elliot are able to get away. So Christina, as a therapist... You being the therapist, not me. (laughs) This is a visual depiction of what you try to do with your clients. You try to bring them into these memories that they've pushed down deep to never think about again. Repressed. Yes. (laughs) And you try to make them relive it. And it's painful at first with the hopes of coming out of it stronger, with a better understanding and perhaps a feeling of control over it rather than needing to hide from it. Yes. That's absolutely true. And we tend to use something we call progressive exposure to exposing yourself to those difficult thoughts and emotions, but in a kind of controlled way. So whereas Elliot's trying to jump to what he thinks is his worst memory, we would have you kind of think about a bunch of them, let's say five, and you would rank them. You put them on a chalkboard? Yes. (laughs) Number one being the most mild, such as he turned a bunch of... Break bills, yeah, where's haircut? There or he go. turned a bunch of break bill students into lushes. And getting further and further to five being your most difficult. And we would confront one until you feel okay with it and then move on to two and so on. When do you get to father problems and dicks? I'd say that's four <laughs> based on Elliot's rankings. Now, part of the reason we do this, and I could go on a whole long spiel, but regular memories are stored in our brain different than traumatic memories. Yes, we tend to repress certain parts of it. Perhaps we have no conscious memory of parts of that experience. We've lost it and blanked it out. 
perhaps we don't have a verbal narrative that goes along with it the way you do with other memories, a sort of story that you've attached about this time. Instead, what you have are these really intense emotions and imagery in your mind. And that means a lot of times you don't control when that memory comes up. It just sort of bubbles up out of there. And it can seem as intense as when you first experienced it, not just a faded photo that we can pull out of the file box at will and say, oh, I'm going to think about this memory right now. It floods us and intrudes upon us because we haven't processed it Mm -hmm. properly. And we're going to see that kind of to an extent with Elliot's memory later on. You have to deal with these things. Yeah, this could have been three episodes worth of Elliot memories, which would have been cool. If you had the power to make them actually go into their memories like this, I think... Well, one, I think therapy, you would have to have, you already need like six licenses. You'd probably need like 13 more (laughs) (laughs) to legally practice this. But I think it would be a lot more intense, but probably even better. Yeah, we actually sort of do this on some level. There's terminology for it in vivo exposure therapy. So let's say you were afraid of the water. We would gradually work up to you approaching parts of this that scare you. Till eventually we actually go to, let's say, a pond or a lake and you have to get in that water. You have to be there. In circumstances where you can't do that in real life, such as military service members who had traumatic experience in combat, they do this now with virtual reality. It's almost like playing a video game that they go back to that setting and they're able to be in it. And it is a very, very intense kind of exposure therapy, but it provides a different way to work through it. That's pretty much the closest we can get to what Elliot's doing. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. Yeah. But perhaps we should have known right away that this wasn't Elliot's number five. The fact that he was able to pull that up, and not that it was easy, but it came right up for him. He was able to think about the memory, talk through it, and obviously... Some of these things he puts on the chalkboard later are not number fives. It's great, though. It provides really good comic relief. And you can imagine yourself in those situations. If somebody tells you, let's pick out your worst memories, you're not going to want to jump right to that. So you're going to say, oh, yeah. Yeah, some silly the time ones. I like I slept with other people's boyfriend. That wasn't great. Uh, I think one of my silly ones would have been the time in sixth grade when my best friend at the time pantsed me in front of girls. Yeah. And you'll say... Oh, that's traumatic. Okay, it's not really But at that time, it pretty much was (laughs) everything. So I love the way Elliot's trying to tackle this. He's written down all the memories on the blackboard, and he says, how do we survive reliving all of these? His plan is to call in his friend memories, who he introduces to Charlton. Here is the Quentin from the time I convinced him to fight Penny. Here is the Fen who is ready to fight pirates at a moment's notice. And here is the Margot, Walter's captain. No force on heaven or earth is more terrifying. Them in their most perfect form to help him defend him in this situation. They'll be fighting the creatures while he looks through the memories. Every one that he shoved to the back of his mind because being self-aware and happy don't always mix. Here's a question that means absolutely nothing. If that memory is killed, is that memory gone? I don't think so. No. In my head, (laughs) it's kind of like what we were saying here. You've processed it and now you can put it into the file folder where it belongs. It's not locked up in a back room where it could come out and attack you at any point. You've dealt with it and you've put it away. And this is kind of how I tell my clients to visualize it too. So he could reconjure Fen, who was killed, and 
I guess he could re-conjure a memory of Charlton if he dies. Yeah, Charlton's the only one who would be different because seemingly this is his actual consciousness living there. It's not just a memory that he's produced. And there is kind of a question about that later when Charlton gets stabbed, what's going to happen to him. But coming back to Elliot's list, we talked about the haircut. We see his failure to rise occasions, sleeping with people he shouldn't have, betraying his friends by accident in the Netherlands, a moment we talk about a lot. And on purpose, when he jailed Margot, we're getting a little more intense now as we move along until he says, brace yourselves, it's daddy issues and dicks from here on out. The monsters arrive and the friends hold them off, but not before Charlton is stabbed. Although he finally gets the word fuck right. (laughs) They're just loving throwing that one around. It seems like he's recovering okay. And Elliot finally figures out why he's here, what he needs to learn from Charlton. And that is the true essence of the memory that he needs to deal with. Yeah, but I think that was more the memory of Q that reminded him with what Q says, I'll do anything for the people I love. Yes, but it's right before that that Charlton talks about his memory, the day he left home, the emotional resonance of why that was difficult. And it's then that he turns to Q, who even here is a generous one, he says, and Elliot knows where he needs to go. Now, I viewed Charlton not really as a helping companion. I felt he was the narrator for us. We needed him, and, and I enjoyed having him on screen. But I don't think he was very helpful, quote-unquote, to Elliot. Well, I mean, he gave him information. Oh, sure. Let me backtrack now immediately. But <laughs> what I mean is, like, he didn't help physically or give him ideas. He was a narrator to push him along. It was almost exactly like a therapist. Mm. Elliot's doing the work. You're not supposed to be... Figures I'd say you didn't actually help. (laughs) (laughs) But the therapist shouldn't actually be doing that. True. Right? We're not giving suggestions. We're not telling you what to do. We are guiding you through this journey until you come to your own answers. And that's what he provided for Elliot. Yeah. And I joke, but it's actually important to do that because if you start guiding us and giving us answers, you're projecting your issues or your angle of truth, quote unquote, onto us, which isn't going to help us. So different from what I do here on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, back on Earth, we mentioned what's going on between Julia and Penny. Penny travels to try to help with the situation, where Shoshana says they ran diagnostics that came up inconclusive. Now they're looking for the right ritual to try, but they don't need Penny. She's the follower and she can handle it. Felt a little bad for him there. A little awkward. Here's where the action happens, though. When he leaves, Shoshana remembers wards and cloaking spells could be masking what she's looking for. She removes them before Julia can tell her it's what's protecting her from Irene McAllister. Do you think that's enough, that little bit of time? I definitely think it was there for a reason. It felt a little awkwardly shoved in there, how she was like, oh, I forgot about this thing. And also, I thought that all of that came down when their true identities came back to them. I don't know what sort of cloaks Julia still had up on her. That's something that we weren't really privy Privy to. to. Uh, It might have been Dean Fogg that gave it to her. And I don't know if that's how Iris found her that quickly. She appears right in that moment. She tells Julia the monster is after her and her friends now. The gods are in hiding. They need her help. Where are they in hiding? (laughs) Julia agrees if Iris can tell her who she is. This is still the main point of what she's trying to figure out. And callously, Iris says, Julia is the worst part of both. both. Helpless as a human, immortal as a god. 
So everyone you ever love will die, and you're just stuck here on this stupid rock, alone, forever. Because no one can kill you, except for, oh, hey, someone exactly like me. This still doesn't really answer the question, does it? We've been asking, what the heck is she now? How do you define... Well, it kind of puts a different spin. I thought it'd be something more jubilee about it. It's just dormant, and she has to make it grow again. But the way Iris puts it, it sounds like she's lost all the magic. She just has the immortality. I didn't read it that way, and we know she still has power inside of her, immense power that's been shown to us already. So that's not gone. To me, it sounds like... You have the actual energy, which is what she's been building back up that's in her now. But then you also need a way to channel that. So magicians are able to learn these things where they can manipulate. Right. The energy has to be there. We see the wellspring has to be flowing. Magic has to be out in the universe. But even once it's there, if you want to use it, you have to know how. And it sounds like she has no way to channel that power out from inside of herself right now. I'm sure a uh, clever tattoo, like Penny uses, right? That would help. Well, it's got to be different for gods Mm. and more complex, which is why she doesn't know how to do this. And we're relying on Iris, who doesn't seem exactly trustworthy or wanting to help her, that everything she's telling her is correct. There's no, but also, right? which there might be. She also says no one can kill her except someone like Iris. Which leads to a number of other questions. Can gods kill gods? Well, the monster can. Yes. He's something else altogether, presumably. A lot we still don't know. Well, I I think he's Prometheus, man. Even if he is, and yes, a titan would be kind of on a different level, whatever they've turned him into now Mm -hmm. seems to be something different. With Julia, the power couldn't be gone or taken away. And we had stated in the past, Prometheus did the same thing. All of his magic went into those keys. And at his most vulnerable point, his enemies took him, meaning other gods, got rid of his body, separated it, put it inside themselves, right? To protect each different part, put this whole puzzle behind it, which is very similar to last episode when I was saying Da Vinci Code with all these puzzles, Mm. but they couldn't kill him. So it's left with this being that is just full power. Raw energy. Yeah. Yeah. That has to inhabit something to be able to manifest that. And thus he possesses other creatures' bodies and does possessing terrible monster after monster living in Castle Blackspire just make him cumulatively worse. I wonder. Does he take on some aspect of that once he's living within them? Mm. And likewise... Could living within Elliot now change him for the better on the other end of things? Don't know. I know that this talking about reassembling a body has led people to some other possible conclusions because we have heard about that in Greek mythology. All still to come, I promise. Back to this scene, Iris goes on to give her instructions. She gives her a living stone, the only thing that can protect her. The blood inside it keeps the monster from traveling. Black spires made of thousands of them. That's why it's the perfect prison, unless someone opens the door. Blood can hold him in place for a few minutes. Thus, she will need to bleed the stone, dump the blood on him, and Iris will take him to the castle. The gods can't touch the stone, or it fritzes their powers, but it's not a problem for Julia. Why? I don't know. That's a little bizarre, isn't it? You would think, okay, she's different because she has some human aspect. 
is this a demigod type of thing where they can do things that even gods can't because they're a little of both? Or her power isn't there, so it can't fritz. Meaning like the magic isn't there. I don't know. This gets into wordsmithiness, though, because mm-hmm. she does have that inside of her. Anyhow, Iris says she will be watching. And don't do your usual thing and screw it up. It sounds like she's very frustrated in the humanity that Julia presents, which does make me think about Prometheus and how they hated that in Prometheus as well. Because this is what Iris got frustrated with her about in the first place, when she was trying to teach her to be a goddess, and all Julia could think about was going to help her friends. And then Iris disappears. We see Shoshana saying the cloak's back up. She doesn't realize that anything's even happened. This is probably silly, but I was wondering, is the cloak really back up? Because Iris came in mid-spell, I wonder. It seemed like she was able to seize on that moment of opportunity when it was down. Yeah, but I mean, was Shoshana able to complete putting the spell back on? I think so. I mean, (laughs) we saw Julia was kind of looking at her all episode like she's messing everything up. But in the end, she also helped tremendously. And this still leaves them with a problem. When Julia fills Quentin in about the plan, he wonders how they're supposed to draw the blood from the stone in the first place. Shoshana is also interjecting here, saying she thinks Iris can't be trusted. After all, Bacchus hated her. Iris talked him into doing something a long time ago, but she doesn't know what that was. They're not really listening to her, but I think that this is a key point. I don't believe this is something you can trace back to mythology. I've never heard of stories about Bacchus and Iris before, but I think it's something that they're bringing up. They're going to come back to later about why we're so mistrustful of Iris. She's not a great person. And Julia and Quentin think they don't really have a choice anyway. They have to do this. He tries a spell on the stone and only a drop of blood comes out. It's then the monster reappears saying he has good news. He went to Mesopotamia. (laughs) He picked up the item and focused his power onto it. Symbols appeared and he wants to know what it says. Again, why did they appear when he went there? No, I don't think it was the fact that he was there. I think it was a clue. He said he was trying to, he got so angry that he was trying to destroy it. And he focused all his power onto it to destroy it. And that's when it came up. I think for sure, though, we'll talk later, this being the cradle of civilization, something about being there. Uh, Q said it as a flippant comment, but I do think it's going to play in. Okay. If not, it's weird to bring it up. But he wants them to help figure it out. Julia thinks they can look it up or hastily, changing tack upon getting Q's signal, take a field trip to break bills. After all, they have a huge library. Once there, the monster quickly gets bored with reading when Shoshana finds something. She almost blows their cover, but Julia manages to put him off track. She redirects Shoshana and rips the page from the book with the inscription. I love Shoshana. I wish there would be more of her. I'm kind of sad that we just started building that character and she's gone already. Me too. I love that the monster still has this kind of naivete in certain aspects he doesn't know how to read he sees this nonverbal communication but he's like this game is confusing (laughs) what's going on here while they're there researching quentin stays back and continues trying the spell when alice appears she explains they locked her up in the library she escaped she's here to warn him the end of his book is in two days he doesn't know if he can trust or believe her but when she recognizes he's bleeding a stone to kill the monster she (laughs) says she can help 
Maybe if they beat the book by doing it faster and instigate a ripple effect, this could work. So she performs her spell. And man, just illustrating the level of her magic so far Instead of a drip, she can have it just pour out. It'll be done in a few minutes. (laughs) And at that point, having what they need, Q wants her to leave. He's telling her, I have this intense moment coming up. I have to kill a monster that looks like Elliot. I don't have room for this. But when he starts recounting the plan to meet Julia in the park and trap the monster, Alice finally gives him the warning from his book. A dog approached, wanting to play. The owner followed to talk to Quentin, distracting him. And in that moment, the monster saw the stone's blood and Quentin, and with a mere thought, sliced him apart, so ending the story of Quentin Coldwater. I didn't come here to make up with you. I came here to save your life. I'm just trying to figure out how to fix this mountain of shit that I've created. And she she really asks earnestly here, which is what makes me feel for him. Does killing him make me a better or worse person? It's although she's still missing those essential pieces of what makes her a human, she doesn't quite understand what she's supposed to do to be better. And when all of this still fails to change Quentin's mind, she picks up the book, saying there's a spell that will tell her where she's supposed to go. If he lets her come help afterward, wherever it says, she will go there and stay there for good. And we pretty much dissected this whole thing. Um, I'm right, you're wrong. (laughs) No, I see what you're saying. I think we still need to see where it's going. I'm just remembering back to when Quentin thought there was still a chance He could be with Alice and feeding her the bacon and trying to get her to remember (laughs) what it is to be human, helping her so much. And then once he saw, even if that happened, they were never going to be together again. It's as though that's when he gave up on her. But Quentin certainly cares enough about Elliot. And this is all about to unfold. Elliot finally addresses the real memory. The time he and Quentin returned from a life in the day, discussing their 50 years spent together and realizing it did really happen. Q says, us, we like, we work. We know it because we lived it. Who gets that kind of proof of concept? He's proposing to Elliot that they try to be together in this present day and time. They saw that their relationship can work. Elliot thinks Q isn't thinking clearly after being injected with a half a century of emotions. But Q wonders, what if they gave it a shot? Would that really be so crazy? And Elliot sort of brushes this off. He tells them this isn't the two of them when they have a choice. It's so final, you can see Q's face fall as he just Mm. resignedly says, okay. Yeah, it's sad. Uh, So many of our clatchers have been shipping them for a while. The thing is, the life they lived was completely different. It was a more simplified life. And I think that's part of what Elliot was getting at. And that aspect of it is truth. And also Q had a mate, a female mate there. Right. So we were forced into this situation where there was only the two of us. There weren't all these outside distractions. There weren't other options. Yeah. He's thinking, is this the same back here now? You can't say it's exactly a direct proof of concept. Mm. It's... Not that. It's the fact that emotionally he has to dismiss this immediately because he can't deal with that. Mm. Quentin is making himself very open and vulnerable and saying what if, and Elliot's afraid. He admits that. We just talked about that kind of character in our bonus, Love Languages. 
and the type of people who run away. Mm-hmm. That's right. Just shut it down without even considering it. The attachment styles yeah. that people have. Uh, fearful avoidant. There we go. Patreon, if you guys want to hear that one. And maybe Elliot didn't even let himself think about it enough to see what he was doing. But current Elliot says someone really loved him and went out on a limb. He knew this was a moment that mattered and he just snuffed it out. And he turns and tells Quentin of the memory he was afraid. And when he's afraid, he runs away. He apologizes and kisses him. He says, if I ever get out of here, when I'm braver, it's because I learned it from you. And with that, the door finally opens. And this takes us to our ending sequence. Simultaneously, we see the plan going down at the park. Alice cues the dog, which creates the distraction, just as Julia and the monster approach. When the door opens, you see the monster visibly shake. Elliot tells Quentin it's him. And Quentin doesn't believe him at first until he says the line, proof of concept. Peaches and plums, I'm alive in here. Q realizes it's true just as Alice rushes to dump the blood and it lands on Quentin. This is Hale acting at his best. You can see the difference in the two types of demeanors or characters played by Elliot the monster and Elliot the Elliot. So clearly. It's awesome. We have a minute of exhilaration that he's passed on this message when Iris returns and says Julia did fuck it up. She slashes Shoshana down, killing her. Mm. Jeez. She's gone. The monster comes up behind Iris, says he wants it back now, and rips the item out of her back. She's dead. Wait, wait, hold on. She didn't go after Shoshana. She went after Julia. Shoshana threw herself in front of Julia. That's important to know. Yeah. I mean, she sacrificed herself. This was her character, right? Yeah. Down to the very end, she was her new follower. Where's Penny through all this? Oh, and once the monster takes it from her, he realizes the group tried to trick him. It's then, what I was saying before, Alice thinks quickly, insisting their secret plan worked perfectly. They lured Iris here just for him. And the best part, Julia found the right book. According to it, all those organs are building blocks, trying to piece together a body. Is it yours? She asks. It is. Hmm. And we've gone over that. And I love this storyline. He doesn't say anything. He just says, impressive. He's bought it. He smiles and leaves. And Q tells the others, Elliot is alive. But the way he says impressive. I love his lines before he leaves the scene. They're perfect. Oh, this game was fun. Yeah, Yeah, you did well. And he's out. Oh, but back at the apartment, Julia returns to find Alice still there, gives her the finger, leaves her alone with Quentin, who thanks her, saying maybe there's a way they can help Elliot. But when Alice thinks she can help and pleads to let her stay, Q says this won't change anything between them. And he tells her goodbye. You could save my life 50 times. I don't want to say too much at this point because I feel like this is a, you know, a magician's thing. Just like last episode ended with Monster Elliot saying that Elliot is dead. This obviously isn't the end of Alice. Um, So I don't want to start guessing at this point. But she will be needed again. And she will hopefully redeem herself. That sums up the plot and is going to take us to our rating. Every episode, we give a rating of 1 to 10 rations. Just like magic rations, less is worse, better is more. Jason, for episode 5, what do you give it? I really, really enjoyed this episode. I'm going to go so far as to say it's one of the better ones this season yet. And that says a lot because I love them all. I'm going to go right back up to 9 rations, which I gave Lost, Found, Fucked. 
I'm loving this season and I enjoyed this episode. Well, I agree with you and I have for sure enjoyed this episode more than any other this season. My highest thus far was episode two with a 9.1. Of course, I don't want to go as high as A Life in the Day, one of my favorites of all time at 9.7. So I'm going to give this a 9.2. I really appreciated all of the psychological aspects, the deep dive into our characters, the emotional strife. The whole depiction of the happy place was excellent. The stuff with the gods and the monster got a little wishy-washy and jumpy for the sake of getting to the point. And I'm a little disappointed with the Quentin Alice stuff, so that just brought it down a tiny notch, but everything else I thought was fantastic and it can't be understated even though Margo wasn't on screen very long the stuff happening in Fillory is spectacular as well. I'm not disappointed with the Alice and Quentin thing. I understand why you're feeling that way but if she came back and in one scene or a couple of scenes he forgave her we'd be like what that was too fast. How can he forgive her so quickly? The writers are just trying to push the story along. No, I don't expect or want him to forgive her. I worry that the way he's handling this does not show growth in that area for Quentin. No, he's wounded. Where I think he is doing leaps and bounds in other areas. He was like that with Julia when he was upset with Julia. I think he needs to figure that out because it's a major flaw for his character. And, you know, Quentin has a lot of struggles. He is not the typical hero, which is wonderful. But I do question if there's certain things where he's ever going to learn. It's like, you know nothing, Q. (laughs) Christina's really excited for Game of Thrones, can you tell? (laughs) And now we move on to one of our favorite segments, the water cooler segment, where we ask our Clatchers on Twitter via at CKC Podcast. If you haven't followed, it's time to do so. Jump on the CKC train. Follow us at CKC Podcast. On the poll, we gave you four characters. Elliot, Quentin, Alice, and Shoshana. Coming in at fourth place with 10% is Quentin. Oh, I thought he'd get more than that. Well, maybe they're feeling the same way you are about Mm, Quentin. A little stuck. It was mostly the reflection on what had happened that we didn't know about with Elliot a while ago. So it's a little confusing. Present day Quentin is kind of stuck with these issues and relying really strongly upon his friend's help to get this plan done. I don't think any of this wouldn't have would have happened if it weren't for Julia, Shoshana, Alice. So I can kind of see where that's going. Coming in third place with only 11% is Shoshana. She sacrificed herself. She was an amazing character this episode and last. She was a mixture of funny, smart, powerful, awesome. But let's face it, she's only she only did a percentage of what she was willing to do and what she, if she was still alive, would have eventually done for Julia. Right. That story writing, though, like character wise, I could see she was getting everyone a little frustrated, getting Julia a little frustrated. She needed better instruction, maybe training. I mean, let's think about this. She served Bacchus her whole life. I'm sure that's a very different experience from serving Julia. But even within a short span of time, she proved she could be capable. She did a lot to help Julia. Yeah. And without a moment's hesitation, put herself on the line to save her. And that's something that we should put our hats off to the writers, because they made us feel for this character in two episodes. It's pretty amazing Mm -hmm. where the death actually has an impact on us. Yeah. Didn't feel like a throwaway. And in second place with 17% is Alice. That's pretty crazy that she outstripped the other two percentage wise, but she did do a lot. She helped tremendously, but the Clatchers are mad at her still. (laughs) 
We haven't forgiven her yet. But they put her above Shoshana, who laid down her life. No, I guess you're right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she made it out of the library, no small thing, bled the living stone in a couple of minutes, and made it so that they were able to execute this plan and not be killed by the monster, mm. most importantly, where it, it really came down to the wire in that last minute. And she's saying, listen, I know I still don't really deserve forgiveness. I'll go banish myself later on. None of this comes even close, though, to the number one, our winner of the week with 62% Elliot. When I was writing his name down, I was like, yep, everyone's going to choose Elliot, <laughs> including myself. I am choosing Elliot as well. This was his episode. Monster Elliot and Elliot Elliot. And Hale Appleman, I hope you come on our podcast because you're a fucking genius. I love his acting. I always have, but now they're really letting him spread his wings. Yeah, perhaps I would have given this to Shoshana and it kind of sucks for her had it been any other episode, but this was so Elliot-centric. I mean, in an episode where you're talking about repressed memories and facing your fears, dealing with truth and reality and the ultimate emotional vulnerability and how terrifying being confronted with that situation with Quentin and... This is the thing. This is the opportunity for real love. Your first instinct is to run. He just depicted all of that so beautifully, plus the switching back and forth with the monster. He knocked it out of the park. It has to go to Elliot. Thank you, Clatchers, for all the poll votes. This is one of the highest voting turnout this season. We got a ton of comments. We'll get to as many as we can. Sherry wrote in to ask, was it foreshadowing when Plover said to Alice, he hoped wherever you go is where you're supposed to be? And later, Alice promises she will use the book to go there. At the end, we never see a spell cast before Quentin tells Alice she couldn't stay and pushes the world book towards her. Is she really going there? And do we as fans want to see that? Well, the answer to your second question, because that's the easiest one to answer. No, we don't want to see that. And I don't think in her mind that was now because it's after everyone's saved the group and still needs cool. help so no matter what quentin says she might intend to use that book but not until she makes sure it's all okay that's what we're hoping at least now once that time comes i don't know so much could happen between now and then everything could change she might realize that she needs to help them and needs to travel quickly and she might call on santa hmm. i just don't know if a sleigh ride will really fit into this whole <laughs> yeah, storyline Shauna says, love all the characters, but have to give this one to Elliot. I love how he didn't even flinch to reject his old frivolous party boy lifestyle to fight to get back his current life. He has grown so much since season one. And yeah, we talk about that a lot, right? He has grown. A lot of our characters have grown tremendously. Just do yourself a favor. Watch a couple episodes of season one and you'll see the difference. So I completely agree. So Shauna, thank God you're not show Shauna. <laughs> we like what you said. Oh, dear. Angela says, poor Shoshana. Speaking of, I wasn't ready to say goodbye yet. I can't even begin to put into words my feelings about this episode. I'm emotionally exhausted. Uh. So great. Ahmed said, Alice, always there to save her love, Quentin. Yes. See, that's the reason why he voted for Alice. And I like it. You're there to save your love, even though you don't really love, love him. Or if they don't love you back. You only love yourself. That's the hardest kind, right? Nicole says, come on, Shoshana gave up her life for Julia. And Bert agrees. Anon P says, I really wanted to vote for Elliot, if only because that one scene had me full on crying. But I have to give major points to Shoshana for finding the page and sacrificing herself. In the long run, her actions will matter a lot. 
Also, those carvings on Plover's face are the Thai magic Martin Chatwin used to reset his life and torture him fresh every day. So is Plover really going to die in the poison room? If not, remember that room has all the really dangerous knowledge. I fear Alice has created a future big bad. Oh, no. Oh, my goodness. I totally <clears throat> forgot he still has those wards that Martin put on him. That means... He can't die. Okay. Now, Shit. what they said in the books was he'll age much, much slower so that he can keep him alive long enough to torture. Not that he couldn't die. I don't know if it's the same here. I don't know, but a non-year genius. That's smart thinking. Brian T. says, gave it to Elliot for amazing self-discovery. We haven't yet seen where the book tells Alice to go. Here's hoping it tells her to go right where she's at. Ooh, that'd be nice. Oh. Sorry, Q. Look where it's telling me to go. Great thoughts, guys. (laughs) Dan says, I really wanted to vote for Elliot. Peaches and plums. But I think Alice was the linchpin of the episode. These are good points for all of our characters that were up on the poll. Meg says, voted for Alice as she saved Quentin, which then led to Q saving Elliot. And I'll miss Shoshana. Good reasoning, though. (laughs) Yeah. Hillary echoes that. Peaches and plums. Mike Moore really knows how to get us. The continuation of a life in the day. That's why The Magicians is my favorite show. And Amir. Oh, my God. Can we talk about Margot? Beating the shit out of that monster, laughing so hard at the TV. (laughs) Just even in a memory, she is classic, consummate Margot. I got this. Andrew says, probably my favorite episode of the season thus far. I really hope Alice comes back soon. We need her redemption arc. Also, I know puppies are a lot of work, but I need to see Jade Taylor soon. And finally, Melly says, I know a lot of characters took risks this week, some going so far as to sacrifice their lives, but I voted Elliot for having the courage to face his past. Also, Hale Appleman's acting was brilliant as always. Hope Elliot and Q get reunited soon. Agree, agree, agree. And Brian wrote in, in response to one of our Clatchers last week, asking us about mythology podcasts out there. And Brian S. is the man. He wrote, there is a podcast by at Parcast Network. So that's P-A-R-C-A-S-T Network. They go in-depth, just like you guys, and is a super good podcast. So yeah, check that out. Uh, Don't forget about us, but yes, check them out. (laughs) Uh, There's also one called Myths and Legends that I just started listening to that's pretty good. We don't do the top to bottom Greek mythology coverage. So I always love talking about podcasts that are doing things we're interested in and aren't able to get to. And thank you, Brian. This is why we love the digital water cooler. It's not just you and myself talking to a wall. We have a whole army of clatchers. So if you have a question, chances are someone has the answer. We also got a ton of emails. Master Assassin says, I just wanted to write in regards to the world book. The introduction of this is literally a map of how to get to other worlds, maybe even timelines. Could be key to finding other gods and planes of existence. Plus, Plover is going to experience another problem as he has the immortality spell, meaning he could survive to read all the important books. This is an extension of what he just wrote us on Twitter, I think. Finally, the reveal that the parts the monster is taking make a body for all but confirms Kronos or maybe Osiris, the Egyptian god. I'm still wondering after learning that the crows came for Prometheus at the season three finale, who they are and the way Iris was portrayed this episode. So a lot of things in there. We did talk about Plover, could definitely be a possibility. I don't know what he would learn in that poison room, but we know all of the information there is super dangerous. We had speculated that being back in the Netherlands could be the key to why we've been seeing the Cheerios and Hmm. that those worlds are 
<clears throat> those worlds are definitely going to come into play. Are the gods hiding on other worlds? And if he inadvertently locates them with this world book, is this the way the monster ends up finding all of the rest of them? Now, that could be good if he is more than what we were thinking he is. As far as what his identity is, I did think about people like Kronos, who in mythology perhaps have been chopped into pieces. Although if you look at the way this was originally worded, the first tale said he was castrated. And later they start saying chopped up. I don't know if that's because it was more palatable than saying castrated. Hmm. But it wasn't as though there was tons of little tiny pieces that had to be reassembled. Little cronets. <laughs> the only tale where there is a specific organ in play is that of Prometheus. Of course, it was only one for him in Greek mythology. Either way, we're definitely straying from the original stories. I don't think that we can entirely use that as a guide for what's happening right now, but it is fun to think about. Finally, addressing the other piece of this, I don't know a lot about Egyptian mythology, so I can't really speak to that. I think any of these gods are just as likely with them bringing up the Mesopotamian mentions. We could be straying further from the Greek pantheon, but I think that would be hard for the average viewer. I don't know. I'm thinking taking a step up to Titans, maybe, but bringing in other legends could be a bridge too far. We're going to address that a little bit, though, in a few minutes. And finally, Jennifer wrote us an email with a lot of good comments. Unfortunately, we don't have time to get to them all, but I loved it. I read all of it. Just to come back for a second to what we were talking about, Alice, she said she really felt for her the effort she was making with Quentin. She could see the conflict with morality for the greater good versus the benefit of those you love best. It's hard to know which way the pendulum is swinging when you are balancing those. Sadly, there is no satisfactory answer when you know too much and can do a lot too. It's like being a god without eternal life. What are the rules when you are Alice? That's why Alice was her MVP. Not only because she made advances in the plot line, but because she's making great strides in her journey as well. Can she expect redemption, though, when she denies it to others? Where will the book send her and what's going to happen? Ooh, that was deep. I like that. Yeah, it's really good. And unfortunately, we're running out of time. We've read all of your emails and we will reply to you. So keep those coming. We love them all. Thank you to all the Clatchers who wrote in, who voted. Christina and myself would not be doing this podcast for five years now if we didn't have you guys on the other end joining in on the conversation. And with that, I want to give three new thank yous to reviewing the magicians on iTunes. Screw this nickname crap. <laughs> <laughs> Mommy audiobook lover 216 and Dean Fogg, who wrote Podcast Gold. <laughs> Everything you guys wrote, we read. We're constantly looking. Do people like us? Do we need to improve? Is Christina ruined this podcast? <laughs> I, I think that all the time. So thank you so much for writing in. Keep those coming. Thank you for the reviews, the listens, the downloads, and for telling your friends about us. And one last thank you to all the new Patreon members. Yes, amazing growth. This past month, and especially in this past week, we are so excited to see that community growing. We see that you signed up. We hope that you got our thank you. We want to write back to you guys every time and say thank you again, but how many times can you say thank you in an email before you sound silly? If you signed up for the movie tier, we have decided the poll has closed. We are going to be covering About Time, so that will be coming sometime soon. All that's left is our character review and spoiler section, and all of this could contain potential spoilers. I'm going to give you your warning now. If you are afraid of that, we will see you next week when we review episode six. 
As I mentioned at the top, we are not covering one specific character this time. We had a lot of open-ended questions. One of them was about the Elliot monster traveling to Mesopotamia. Now, while I don't think we are going to get into those gods specifically, it is interesting to think about, as it has ties to Greek mythology that we could see. The Sumerians practice a polytheistic religion, with anthropomorphic gods and goddesses representing forces or presences in the world, much the same way as later Greek mythology. Accordingly, the gods originally created humans as servants for themselves, but freed them when they became too much to handle. A number of stories and deities have Greek parallels as well. For example, it has been argued by some that Inanna's descent into the underworld strikingly recalls and predates the story of Persephone. Deities in ancient Mesopotamia were almost exclusively anthropomorphic, meaning they took on the appearances of animals. There are stories in later Greek mythology of our gods doing that, and some people said, were they pulling from this first, the older versions of those gods? They were thought to possess extraordinary powers and were often envisioned as beings of tremendous physical size. The deities wore milam, an ambiguous substance that covered them in terrifying splendor. The effect of seeing it on a human is described as knee, a word for a physical tingling of the flesh. And if you pull up a picture, it shows very many of them are sort of bird-like. Yeah. Which reminded me of the creatures that were coming to get Elliot. That's right. That used to live in the castle that the monster had absorbed. Right. And they were also throwaways. Mistakes. So were those older, more powerful gods Mm -hmm. that our gods imprisoned because they were afraid of them? And then this monster was even more powerful than them. Perhaps. I was thrown off because that look during the Roman age, that's what the doctors wore. That's true. Think about it this way, though. They took the form of animals, making them monster-like. Our gods, the more pure, dignified ones, didn't like that. Now think about the talking animals and Fillory going silent. Wow. Doesn't that all kind of feel like it's tying together? It coincides. I like it. Well, it's fun to think about because they were talking about the young upstart gods, the second generation gods like Ember and Umber, and if they only knew the older gods, right? Our Greek pantheon, Zeus, Persephone, Which isn't even the oldest. Right. They have titans above them, which were even more powerful. Who would they fear? Even older gods, Egyptian, Mesopotamian, ones that were around since the dawn of time, that the only way this monster gets answers is when he actually travels to Mesopotamia. And then something that looks like a stone, very reminiscent of these cultures, has symbols that appear. I love it. So the key to this is going to be what book did Julia pull out that she has answers to? What symbols are those? Are they ancient hieroglyphs? Are they something that matches up to this? Because then I think you can be pretty sure that's the track they're going down. This is so fun. I hope most of our clatchers don't stop when you say potential spoilers coming. I know. I was worried because now I'm going to go into this next part. And speaking of the talking animals, which are these sentient creatures native to Fillory, they bear similar appearances to animals on Earth. Some have human-like intelligence and are able to talk. In addition to that, because they're not really the same thing, the book talks about the seven known unique questing beasts. This is definitely a thing in the TV universe as well, because we saw the white doe, what was it, last season? The great cock appeared last season. I'm just not sure if it's exactly seven here or if the importance is going to be the same. 
But one of them was called the Unseen Monitor, a large lizard that can turn a person invisible for a year. Oh, boy. Now, this one isn't that big. No. To my eyes. I mean, maybe it can transform or something. More likely, though, if we go to source material from the books, we had talked last time about upcoming episode titles. And this is why I'm giving the spoiler warning. Some people don't like to know about this. The 12th episode of this season of The Magicians is called The Secret Sea, which was the name of the fourth book in the Fillory and Further series. So that's the series about Fillory that was written in-universe by Christopher Plover. And we had talked about what that means. Could we see some of that content maybe that's referred to in the book in our 12th episode? Now, the fifth and last of the Fillory and Further books before Quentin gets that last unpublished manuscript was called The Wandering Dune. And we just heard this lizard we were introduced to is a lizard of the dunes. In the Magician's series, it's kind of hard to draw direct parallels because we didn't have a Margot in the books. We had a Janet. She is definitely not a direct reference, but a lot of the things she went through have parallels. And I do think some of the journeys yet to come for Margot could be mimicked a little bit from Janet's journeys, one in particular. And that's the time that she spends kind of wandering around the desert. She is off on her own quest, searching for something. She is alone. She's completely separated from her group and more importantly, from Elliot for a much longer duration of time than we had ever seen before. It's a journey she has to complete, sounding very much like the fate she was given in the description from Lord Fresh when he was telling her about the birthright box. The creators have also said that is something that we will see in the TV series eventually. Margot will go on this journey into the desert. It was really tough and trying, and it's a little convoluted. She first went off to collect taxes from their people from an area that was kind of forgotten about, and the foremost, or leader of that area, carried a spear made from a dark metal that enhanced magic. He sent Janet on an impossible task... And she went out into the desert to complete that task. But she later winds up taking the spear from him and getting that medal, getting an item that gives her the ability to enhance magic. Along the way, too, this was a life-changing journey. I will tell you no more. If this is where the lizard's going to tell her to go, what she needs to find out, it's going to be a long, separate arc for Margot, but one that I am super excited about. Wow. That was an information dump right there, and you got my mind spinning. Well, that's why I saved it for spoilers. <laughs> a lot of people might not want to know that, but I'm not getting into the nitty-gritty. It is the highlights. That's okay. mild, then we just got into major, and now we're going to do next, next episode, episode, which some people hate that. They don't that's want true. previews or anything about next time. Speaking of, next episode six is called A Timeline and Place. The synopsis, which is never helpful this season, says, Quentin and Julia play Pictionary. Margot drinks some weird milk. Not even going to pay attention to it because last episode or this episode that we were speaking, that we're podcasting about, was about a dog. And it was a jogger with a dog. The distraction in the park that didn't (laughs) matter. (laughs) But we can go off of what we saw in the preview, where some guy that I don't think we know has Marina and Penny 23 locked in cages and is working magic with a kind of coded box. Not really sure what that is. He says, I want you to go back to your timelines where you belong. 
Marina warns, your brain can get stuck in time. You don't know where you are or when you are, and then you die. And Penny 23 appears in a white room before another Penny. Our Penny? Penny 40 certainly looked like him and says, I've been wanting to talk to you. The guy that came into the bench with Penny in this episode, I knew right away that was the same guy that saw Marina in the park. It's the same park, too. And said, I've been looking for you. And then we never saw her again. Is that the same guy? I think it's either the same guy or part of the same crew. Part of the same crew, yeah. Um, Which makes me think this is all about Katie, because this all happened because of Katie. And that's what leads me to believe that this is all Katie's doings to get Penny 23 back. Well, this makes sense. If we see them both face to face, it's because Penny 40 back, sorry. Yeah, she somehow sent 23 down Mm -hmm. to speak with 40. Now... What I'm not getting, why does this guy have them locked up? He is convinced they don't belong in this timeline, wants them to go away. What is this box that he's working with? We knew this was going to cause a problem eventually. I wonder if he has information. Is this changing things? Is it rippling out in timeline 23 and causing effects that we don't know about? Are we going to get close to an answer with the two pennies and then they're going to want to send him away? There's so much that could be in store here that I'm really excited for. Me too. I think this episode, we're going to veer away from the main storyline, but I think we're going to enjoy it tremendously. A timeline in place. It sounds like we say bottle, but about something we've been wanting to see. Yeah. It's major for us. Also, this reminds me, and we're going to write back to you. We got an email from a clatcher and it's not in front of me. So I apologize for not having your name here. But we had a clatcher who asked us about the coins that now had the bad luck inside of it. And do we believe Katie would do this knowing that the bad luck would spread out like a web and all this bad luck would occur? So we're going to write back to you, but I want, and hopefully you're listening, but I want to say to you, I don't believe that is the case. And Katie's not even thinking that way because the bad luck does disappear. It dissipates after a while. We learned from our luck character that you need to dispose the bear It still has bad luck and it will dissipate eventually, but just dispose it for... Yeah, I think she thinks Marina got the brunt of it, which was her full intention. And this is Jennifer, by the way you're talking about. Jennifer, okay, thank you. You're too good with the... She's good with the the notes and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you, Jennifer, and I hope you're still listening. But we will write back to you. Thank you to everyone. We are so excited to review the next episode. Can't believe we're at six already. That's putting us close to mid-season. Yeah, and I'm scared of the end of the season because we will be doing our Patreon podcasts, our Magicians podcast, and for the first time ever, we're going to have two shows that we cover happening at the same time. One of our biggest Not shows, just Game of shows. Thrones. Game of Thrones, so the we, final season. Yeah, so we'll be covering both at the same time. So if you love Game of Thrones, listen to those podcasts. Don't listen to our first season. We were very green back then. We weren't that good. But listen, uh, the last couple matter of fact, seasons. just start at five. Yeah, season five. But if you're trying to get prepped for this season, we do bonuses at the end. Perhaps we shouldn't call them bonuses. They're really good recaps of everything that happened that season to get you caught up. And we will also be doing a prepper episode sometime in the near future. Our thoughts for the upcoming last season, what we're excited about, and speculation. It will be brief, but an awesome way to get you ready. Keep those reviews coming. Follow us on Twitter at CKC Podcast. Tell your friends about us and join our Patreon. We want to continue to do this. We want to continue to have fun with you guys. Till next time, this round's on me. This round is on me.
Please hang up and try again.